Well, hello everyone. This is uh, Leonardo Valvasari. You all know me as Leo. And I'm really happy to be here on Talking Blues. And we'll talk some blues today. How about it? Do you consider yourself a blues person? Uh, well, yes and no. Like, I'm pretty deep in that world, but it's part of it was accidental and part of it was by choice. Uh, but I've done lots of different kinds of music, and I started off as a classical musician. Okay, that's where I the started, cello comes yeah, in. Yeah, cello was my first instrument. So did you have formal cello? Yeah, I started in an awesome music program in Kitchener-Waterloo, run by a gentleman named Michael Bergauer, who's still alive. He's in his late 80s, and he convinced the separate school board to invest a few million bucks in orchestral instruments and a and a properly tuned uh, rehearsal room. And starting in grade six, they offered you free music lessons once a week. You got a 20-minute lesson on an instrument of your choice. So I didn't know what a cello was, but my dad chose it for me. So I started on cello lessons in grade six, and I was immediately taught to read music. And within a year, I was playing in different ensembles because they had uh, a really well-funded after-school program. Were you drawn to music immediately? Oh, I, I always wanted to be a musician. It started with the, hearing the Beatles when I was three years old. And that's my first memory of music, is hearing the Beatles and then the, all the classical music my dad played, which he played constantly in the house. He wasn't a musician. He wanted to be, but he was uh, an Italian immigrant. He didn't have the chance in his, right. to, to learn. He wanted to, but he never really did it. So, so was, I became the guy. <laughs> and the cello, was it the first instrument? You ever... That's my first instrument. I'm sure I wanted to beat around on drums because that was like a lot of kids. You see a drummer on TV like Ringo and you just want to do that. It's the first thing you can relate to. I didn't know what an electric bass was for a long time. And that became my career instrument. But it was years before I knew what, what an electric bass was actually. Wow. So you wanted to become a musician. You started playing the cello. Was classical music a possibility for you? Uh, I was pushed towards it, and towards the end of my cello, serious cello studies, I was studying, studying with uh, Gisela Depkat, who was a principal cellist here at the TSO. And uh, I played in the KW Youth Orchestra under Rafi Armenian, who is a very well-known international conductor at this point. So it was pretty serious, but I started too late, and uh, I didn't have... I just didn't have the hands to be that kind of a like a legit cellist. Did you, did you know that? Like, I mean, I figured that out when I after I started playing electric bass because I could read music. I taught myself how to play bass. I bought a bass for Christmas one year because the guy who played cello beside me in the orchestra showed up with an electric bass one day, and I was profoundly like to answer your question about um, paradigm shifts. Well. Michael Bergauer's son, Michael Jr., shows up with a Fender Jazz and an Ampeg amp, and I'd never seen this stuff before. And I was transfixed, and he let me hold it and play it, and that was it. I, a few weeks later, I took my Christmas money, and I went downtown Kitchener, and I bought a electric bass in the Mel Bay and the Carol Kay bass book. But I could read music already, so it was just a matter of teaching myself where the notes were. Okay, so how different is that from the cello? I know it's... It's different quite, range, cellos tuned in fifths, and then electric bass is tuned in fourths. 
So electric bass would have a few lower notes. Right. It doesn't go quite as high. And then, of course, you're playing your... It's uh, the electric bass isn't a bowed instrument, right? So. But was he just yeah. that? Like, was was learning it easy? Uh, it was easier because I could look at a piece of paper and say that was C natural, and then find out where C natural was on the bass, and then without having to learn what C natural was first. Right, right. So that made it easier. But I was playing probably within a few months. I was already getting proficient, and I mean, I've been playing cello for four or five years at that point. So. And okay, so cello, you're playing mainly classical music. Yeah, you, you had interest in pop, rock, whatever. Oh yeah, I went. I you know, by by adolescence, I was well into buying records. Right. What what, what were you into? Everything, absolutely everything, because it was a great time for AM radio. It was like the late mid, early '70s until the uh, early '80s. AM radio was awesome. Yeah. And then FM was just coming on board. And FM was wild territory. We had stations in Kitchener. Like I was just talking to Dave Booth, Daddy Cool, who's you know mainstay on the Toronto blues scene. Mm-hmm. But I grew up with him. He was a DJ in Kitchener and had a late night radio, uh, radio show on Chime FM, not AM but FM. And he had two hours of free time to play anything he wanted. So he would play everything. So I heard every kind of music there is on his radio show. And then of course he worked at. Sam the record man so I go down to the record store and he'd point out the records that he was highlighting on Saturday night so I and he played everything from the who to Leon Russell to prog rock of the area I heard gentle giant on his show and the Straubs and all sorts of cool bands it was such a great era for music it was so wide open and it was all new so at what age did you pick up the bass I was 14 and at that point what were you listening to a lot of prog rock so which bass player would have Oh, it was Chris Squire and Michael Rutherford and especially John Wetton in uh, that era of King Crimson, like early 70s era. Like they were, I was buying those records when they came out, so you're getting your head changed. You're playing the cello, then you've discovered the bass. Are you still playing the cello afterwards? Both, yeah. I played the cello until I was about 18 or 19. And at that point, I was at that stage where I was establishing a career in music, and I had to choose what to do, and I went with the electric bass. Cause okay, so tell me about that decision. You, you said you knew you wanted to follow music. Yeah, I had, uh, because I could read music and was playing electric bass, and I came up through a school system with a lot of networking, I started doing sessions in Kitchener. Oh, okay. And so I did sessions on cello and on bass. Did that come easy to you? Well, the music teacher opened the studio and started hiring the students, so they did come easy to me. He just, he just said, can you show up and play the cello? And I went, sure. And that was how it started. And then I got known and got started doing sessions at other studios for other producers. And then you decided to pursue? Yeah, at that, that point, I was already like living with my girlfriend and in bands full-time. And, okay. But the studio work. And studio work, studio work was always there because it was pre-digital era. So if you needed an electric bass on your recording, which was on magnetic tape, not into a computer, by the way, you needed to get a guy who could play the bass. <laughs> and if he could read music, that made the, the session even faster. So in that era, they had guys called arrangers that did all the arranging. You went into the session, the chart was on the music stand. You sat down and read the part and went home. It wasn't Sessions today are way more inventive and creative. Very rarely do I get a chart where somebody has everything written out. But that era was different, and especially the commercial jingle work, which there was a lot of. Right. I did tons of jingles when I was a kid. 
did, what did you learn from doing the jingles? Because a lot of musicians have gone that path. Well, it was, uh, it was just really good work, and it had fallen into my lap because I was in that era where they needed that stuff. It, it changed when digital came along. And then, of course, now we've had 10 years of big data to disrupt the mm-hmm. industry, so very few people are really like full-time jingle people. They own a jingle house, and, but like the scene of studio musicians that would do two or three jingles a day is long gone, man. Did you make good money from that? Oh, the jingle money was fantastic, yeah. And, and when you thought about being a musician, did you think, like, how, what did you envision it to be? Well, I didn't have that many expectations, to be honest with you. I always wanted to be in the Beatles, so I was always trying to see if I could be in a band, but the realities of my existence were that I had to make money. So I didn't have the luxury of being in a band with three other guys and, rah, here's our mission, we're going to take it to the world. I, because I could read music and had this classical background, I just did lots of jobbing work. And um, there was more commercial work. And as I said, the jingle thing was, uh, was still big in that era. So there was work there. And then I worked for a few producers that we, I did a lot of records. I don't even remember at this point that you just went in and the chart was there and he played and went home. So that, and then I would play in either cover bands or work with original artists. And then... <clears throat> Uh, when I was 20, I got an audition for to play with Ronnie Hawkins. So I became a hawk when I was 20 and spent a year and a half in, in his uh, internment camp. Because <laughs> so many people from this area have gone through that camp. Yeah, well, he was like the, the gateway right. to a lot of professional rock work in Canada. Like if you were in the band, had gone through the hawks, you were sort of anointed right. on some level. I don't know how true that is anymore. But, but tell me what that experience was like. Oh, it was great. It was, uh, I think it was Ronnie's golden era. It was right after the last waltz and his career had a massive resurgence. He had a manager put out a record that won a Juno. We were doing Soft Seaters and we played CNE Stadium. He had a national TV show that I played on. It was a good year and a half or whatever it was. Wow. And you stopped because of health reasons. Well, no, I stopped because I didn't get along with Ronnie. <laughs> oh. I was a young buck, and I, I had, you know, the, I was the youngest guy in the band. Everyone else was at least 10 years older than me, so it was like a social shock for me to be around all that. And there was a lot of, it was like the Rolling Stones in a way. There was a lot of deviant activity <laughs> around me. Um, and... There were some business issues, and uh, at that at that age, I had no idea how to negotiate or right. or negotiate even the landscape of the business I was in. I was just a guy playing bass, and I would stake my ground, and that was it. If I had been, if I was a hawk now, I would have probably handled Ronnie differently, and and uh, maybe it would have changed. Although we're friends now, I went to visit him a few years ago, and I play the occasional gig with his kids. Lee is a good friend, and I always send Ronnie my love, you know. That was a long time. But it was a good experience. At the end of the day, it was an amazing experience, and especially his television show. I guess, it was national yeah. TV. I played with people like John Lee Hooker and Ricky Skaggs. Um, uh, tons of, I can't remember, I'd have to go back and look at the show notes, but those were some notables. Joe Eli, or Ely. Right, wow. So, been saying his name wrong for 25 years, but. <laughs> so when you quit, 
when I quit, they, uh, actually, we all quit. The Hawks kind of all quit at the same time. I was the first one to kind of split. Right. Several, a few of them lasted another month or so, and then we actually branched off and became a band for our guitar player, John Lewis. And we made a record with John that was produced by Dan Lanois. And uh, that sort of landed him in a blues indie territory for a year. And then I split to go to California and go to school because I wanted to learn more. Music? Or? Yeah. I went to the Musicians Institute in 1983. And learn more thinking that you will do more studio work? or Oh, gateway to L.A. I wanted to live in Los Angeles and like get into the music business in that era down there. How easy was that? It wasn't that easy. The school was great, and that was a great experience. Um, and it, had I stayed, I probably would have been, become established in the Los Angeles scene and made my career there. But uh, I came home for love, and because I was thinking I was going to get married, and figured I could uh, tame the tiger in in Toronto. And then I got diagnosed with lymphoma a few months after I came home, and that changed everything at that point. So there was no going back to L.A. and uh, the relationship. Well, that was another story. But the ne the next part of my life became the journey through uh, recovering from lymphoma and then reestablishing my career and moving forward from there. Um, how many years? Three years? 1985 till 1988. Wow. I'd say about two years of heavy chemotherapy. The last year was recovering from it. And uh, I had a, a interesting bout. They thought the cancer had come back because I had an infection in my bone marrow that turned out not to be a reoccurrence of the cancer. And then I at this point, I was at Princess Margaret Hospital, and one day they just said, you're okay, go home. And they watched me for a few years, and it's never come back, And it, other than the aftermath of you know going through it. That's all. That I haven't had to deal with it again. So. How did that whole experience affect you, change you? I'm not sure yet, because <laughs> it's a traumatic experience for anybody. Though. Yeah, anybody sure. who's been through cancer will tell you. And I had a very vicious form of cancer that people usually didn't survive. So, but I'll tell you, I never thought for a minute I would ever die. No matter how bad it got, there was something inside that said, it's, this one's not going to get you. And it was bad, man. There was a few times where it was touch and go, but I never, ever thought I was going to die from it. Why do you think that is? is I have no idea. Is it just your personality? Is it... Uh, Probably, I wonder if I was faced with it now, I don't know what I, if I would think the same way. I think it's the sort of the armor of youth. You don't know how bad something can be mm -hmm. until Because you were get, pretty young. Yeah, I was 20. I was diagnosed at 23. So at this point, are you, do you stop playing music altogether? Uh, well, I sort of had to retreat from being a pro. Mm -hmm. And I was living in Kitchener, Ontario at that time. That's where my family's from. I kept my own apartment. And I helped my dad in his furniture business. And I played locally as much as I could. But there were times where I just, I was too sick to play. And uh, at one point they gave me something that made my fingers numb for three months. And I started playing drums. <laughs> I was starting to get good. <laughs> Became Ringo. <laughs> well, I still harbor, you know, if I had a set of drums, I wonder if I would just take a year <laughs> off and really get good. If it would... Uh, if it would be something I should do. But anyways, I did it for a little while, and I, but I didn't give up bass entirely. So played in local bands in KW and backed up a few blues people. 
when when they told you everything's good, tell me what that felt like. Well, I was significantly relieved. Um, I was like, something can make you so relieved or happy that you actually can't feel it or quantify it. Um, but when they told me I could go home from the hospital, I, I was supposed to have a bone marrow biopsy. And the day that they were prepping me for it, the head of virology at Princess Margaret came and said they weren't going to continue. He says, your, your red blood cell counts have gone up significantly. Significantly, We don't know why, but all the blood work, uh, um, that we, we've redone the blood work and pathology, and it looks like you had an infection in your bone marrow. So best thing for you to do now is go home. And I had to go back every couple of weeks to get blood work done. Right. Uh, and then it was like every three months and then every year and then every two years. And so it went on for five or six years, the follow-up stuff. But uh, I was, uh, you kind of go manic. I'm sure. Uh, the, and I've talked to other survivors that same thing happens. Like now you've got your life back and you don't want to sleep because there's so much to get caught up on. There's so much you want to do. And then you're paranoid that if it comes back, you're going to lose again. So, so there's a year or two of like just absolutely living on the edge of like, there's just, I don't want to sleep because <laughs> if it comes back, I don't need sleep. So, so once you calm down from that, then it's a matter of, you know, you naturally have to put your life back together. And, um, uh, I was like 27 or 28 by that point. So 26? Yeah, 26. And uh, the first year was just surviving, like trying to put my life back together, start starting to work again. Uh, I was helping my dad with his business in Kitchener, so I had something to do. And then Mal Brown came to Kitchener, Ontario, and changed everything. <laughs> Tell me about that, because this is where I first saw you play with Mal. Um, and Mel happens to be one of those people I respect and admire a great deal. Oh, um, yeah. but tell me about how you met Mel and how he... Well, through you must know Glenn Smith in yeah, Kitchener. Yeah. Glenn, well, it's Glenn Smith and, and really his vision in opening uh, first the Hoodoo Lounge and bringing blues shows to Kitchener and then opening Pop the Gator. And Mel would come up and play with his trio and he was incredibly popular and Mel, being the astute observer that he is, thought, hey, the scene up here looks pretty good. Um, he convinced Glenn to get the immigration together, and Mel moved to Kitchener. And that's when he needed a band, and that's where I fall into it. So you just got a call out of the blue? Well, I played with him a couple times in an informal situation, and he needed a band, and who's, and he would just, he'd just ask Glenn, who's the guys I need? And Glenn called Leo, and uh, so that started my association with Mel, which lasted until he passed away. So tell me about playing with somebody like Mel, who has, like yourself, played in a lot of studio recordings, who's played with tons of people of all genres. Uh -huh. What did you learn from playing with him? Well, the thing about Mel is that initially it was incredibly intimidating because his background was so massive, and uh, you just had to see him play once or twice to go... Wow, this, there's there aren't that many people who play that well, mm -hmm. and brought like he just had this charisma and a way of putting it together, and he never lost his down home roots, but he was still super uptown. Um, 
and he, he was just one of the most musical people ever. Like, I've encountered a few people who have that kind of musicality in other genres. Mel understood all music. Like, he, you'd ask him about the Beatles, and he'd say, Beyond Talent, Leo. <laughs> you know, and, like, he was one of the first guys of that generation, like, you know, a heavy-duty black blues musician telling me he liked the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Which rhythm section do you like Mel with Hendrix? Do you like Buddy Miles and Billy Cox? No, Leo, I like the English guys. <laughs> you know, he was so unpredictable in so many ways. He didn't, he would tell me, bring the five string bass, Leo. I don't want my music in a museum. That was huge when he said that that just changed everything for, for me because I was looking at him like one of these old guard custodians of, of the dominant seventh chord. And then it was very evident to me that he didn't live in the past. He wanted to keep moving forward. Maybe he played in the blues genre. But, you know, it's funny. There's a cassette tape that must still exist of Mel Brown originals that he never got to finish. And we had a loose plan to start doing it because I wanted to record them with him. But then he got sick and passed. But the music that he was writing... Mm-hmm. And recording for himself was so beyond like bar blues or the kind of traditional blues shows we presented. Like he had these beautiful ballads with lush string arrangements, uh, horn stuff, you know, swing jazz stuff, folky kind of tunes. Like he he loved everything. Yeah. My, My fond memory of Mel, he would every so often call me and then he would play something over the phone. Yeah. And it was just... Like he was just, probably playing you some of that stuff. Probably, but like, yeah. it was like unbelievable to me that I mean, and and you know, I was probably just as intimidated every time he called because I'm thinking, why is Mel Brown calling me? But I used to do his website <laughs> for him. But yeah. but he would call me and play these things, and I you know would be like, wow, Mel Brown's on the phone playing music. <laughs> well, he was the coolest of all time. I miss him so bad. Yeah, I do. Um, did he ever tell you what to play? Very rarely. Uh, I sort of, you know, I had a blues background, so I kind of knew what I was supposed to play. A lot of what we did in the first year or two that he lived in town and we put it, the, the band together, he would come to my place and we would just play songs. Right. And he would show me songs that he knew and that, and then show me a particular bass line. This is how I like this one to go. Because Mel would take any standard and he would change something to brownify it, as I called it. <laughs> so he would change a chord change, do a little rhythmic thing invent a new bass line like those were the little things that made his show so different than anyone else's on some levels you know he didn't he wasn't that cliched so that's sort of how we did that and that's as far as it went if I asked Mel like he would play these back cycle chord changes through jazz tunes and say what did you just play and he'd go I don't know Leo I ain't called a chord in 20 years you know (laughs) (laughs) so you start off with a classical background um how how much of a help did that initial training in classical music help you along the way? Uh, ear training, because you, I guess you learn to identify harmonic, you know, the harmonic structures that are in music. Mm-hmm. Um, dynamics, which is something that in the rock world is maybe not as important. I mean, in an orchestra, you're taught not to play any louder than, like you have to be able to hear every instrument in the orchestra, no matter how far away it is from you. So if you're playing louder, so loud that you can't hear the trumpet, then you're 
playing too loud. So right. there's this sort of di- inherent dynamic spectrum that's much wider than most pop music. So you go from very, very quiet to very, very loud. And I've always brought that into as much as possible into my music wherever I play. And tension and release, which is the most, sort of the really what music is. It's a storyline, no matter what kind of music or who's doing it. You're going to start at point A and you're going to end somewhere. Right. And along the way, um, you just have to navigate certain territories. And there's just the certain, build the building blocks of music, no matter what the music is, are come from the same place, especially in Western music. So. When you joined Mel's band, was that it? Because I don't know how much... Mel was gigging at that point. Were you well, playing we with played a lot? a lot, man. We had a we had a regular Wednesday night at Pop the Gator that was a super like a jam night, right? And then we couple at least a couple weeks a month would back up the artists that Glenn would bring in. So we were a backup band to lots of people who came through. Then Mel would we would, and we're talking name blues, musicians. yeah, name blues musicians. Uh, you know, Tom Principato would come to town. We would back him up, or we did several weekends with Kim Wilson and and various Austin guys. We had did one weekend with Danny Freeman that got released as a record a couple of years ago. I'd have to go back into the books because there was three years of really intense, like, you know, four nights a week. Um, kind of living that I was doing then and Mel would be good for like three gigs a week. We had, eventually mm-hmm. we had like a Monday night, a Wednesday night, play a weekend somewhere, go to Ottawa, go to Quebec. Um, but I'll tell you, Mel Brown moved to Kitchener really to retire. <laughs> and pretty well changed Kitchener, I would presume. He changed everything. <laughs> With, it, between him and the focus of that club, part of it was the open stage because we let anybody come up, right. any kind of music. We didn't let hack, hackers get up. You could get up. If you couldn't play, you didn't get up again. Right. But a lot of the young musicians beaconed there because there was nowhere else. There really wasn't a scene in Kitchener um, until Pop the Gator and Mel and brought all these people downtown then all of a sudden bars started having music nights everywhere and then there was there was a whole generation of kids that were just coming up with indie rock and uh there had been all this music education in kitchen there was like a couple generations of mike bergauer students out teaching everybody so there's all these people that plus the we haven't even talked about the german polka tradition of musicians that exists in kw right you know, the October, biggest Oktoberfest outside of Germany is still in Kitchener. And in the 70s, everybody had a band. Everybody played polka music and Oktoberfest had a gig. So there was that side of it as well. That all blended together, because mainly because of Mel. He was very iconic. And, and he gave a lot of people space to come and play and find each other. And bands would start. Like, I can't tell you how many blues bands started at Pop the Gator off of Wednesday nights. Well, when you think, I think of like somebody like Julian Fouth. Yeah, his very first time he was ever on a stage was with us. Yeah. There's a bunch of those, Steve Strongman, uh, Rob Zabo, Danny Michelle. I mean, he was already sort of established, but he came out a lot and played on Wednesday nights and sat in with us when the Rhinos were his band. And so is that why he says that um, Mel was an influence to him? Like, oh, I yeah. Didn't... Oh, yeah, they were. Mel, Mel loved Danny. He encouraged him a lot. We always had the rhinos on the blues picnics, and Danny was always invited on stages. Right. Yeah. What would you, when you look back on that time, what do you think about the chance that you had to work with Mel? Well, it, it was, uh, the education was pretty astonishing because we did back up a lot of people. I had mm-hmm. to learn a lot of music, and I had to learn 
how to read people's minds. What does this person want? What, you know, what do they like? What don't they like about the bass lines that I'm playing? Or what do they need? Um, and just experience, because you end up playing a lot of, you play shows and you build confidence and your ability to make a decision on your feet. Uh, Mel played a lot. We listened to a lot of music. I go to his place and hang out, and he'd play me this, play me that. I'd play him this, play him that. He liked everything, man. Mm-hmm. We went to see Sting once. He, he said, yeah, Sting, another one, beyond talent, Leo. He mm. loved Sting. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember shooting some video of you playing with Snooky Pryor and Mel, which oh, yeah. became a, um, an album. I'd love to see that footage. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can show it to you. Um, but I remember... At that night, seeing that show, it was good, but I wasn't blown away by it. But I remember hearing the recording and being blown away by it. Like, it was one of those unusual cases where often, you know, I've been to many shows where it just sounded Mm -hmm. amazing, and then you hear the recording and it doesn't sound as amazing. But for that, for whatever reason, that evening was the opposite for me, where, where when I was watching, I thought it was okay, but when I heard the album, I thought it was amazing. No, it's funny about that gig. I didn't know we were being recorded, first of all, because it was a couple of years later when Andrew Galloway yeah, yeah. said, hey, yeah, we made a record. Oh, really? Cool. Uh, God bless Andrew for doing it. I'm glad it's done and it's out there. What I remember about that gig is sort of a package day. There was a lot of music. Yeah. It was really crowded. And it was a really loud audience. And there are some clubs, sometimes when you just get that much noise floor of people talking the music can't cut through and it was like a Sunday afternoon and people were drinking and partying and I remember like just it was a loud gig audience wise and that can sometimes just push the music into a corner and you don't you're not allowed to get into the dynamics or the new any of the nuance because what you're hearing you're like hearing through something you have to hear through the people and uh I remember that gig being like that. Plus, it was a throw-together gig. I, I just got a call last minute like on Saturday. Leo, can you come tomorrow play with Snooky? Yeah, man. Of course. <laughs> he, I, was, I didn't have a gig that Sunday, which was rare in that era. So I'm glad I came and did it. And I loved Snooky. I always loved him. Too. Yeah. What was, a powerhouse on stage. Oh, what an amazing human being. He was like 83 or something when yeah. we made that record. And he was spry and chipper and totally on and had all this love. Yeah, I, that was, a, was great. Good to see that for yeah. me at that time. Yeah, and it's great, great that Andrew did record. I think they, oh, yeah. they recorded a bunch of people, but that was certainly the standout of the day. Um, that was Blues on the East Side, I think. And, oh, yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, I, it's a lot of gigs ago. I remember <laughs> the gig, and I remember Snooky's beautiful suit, and I remember how much fun we had playing. But it was totally like fly by the seat of your pants blue show. So there's mistakes all over there, man. You can hear me going to wrong chords all the time. I didn't know what we were going to do. I was just watching hands, <laughs> watching Mel, watching John Lee, and watching Snooky and see which one's going to give me the chord change. <laughs> so no rehearsal at all? None whatsoever. Just and some of these songs you've never played before? Probably. Wow. Some, of the, some, some stuff I think got made up on stage. Yeah, and which mo- is G of- Leo, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just call it the key and start. <laughs> so, when when Mel passed away, how did that affect you? Oh, I was um, I was very sad. First of all, I, I couldn't make the hospital because I was 
in Brockville with my son when I got a call that you know, Mel's close and it was impossible for me to get back and be with him right. or I would have. And uh, we all knew it was coming. Yeah. And you just felt this massive presence leave. And this, you know, Mel was like, I don't know, he was like a, a monument or a, something that was all you'd think was always going to be there. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden it wasn't because we spoke all the time, you know, and I still played with him up until the end and as much as I could. And then it was just the missing part. And my wife will tell you there was a good three months where I really was, you know, a little bit depressed. Mm -hmm. I, I, had, I grieved for him hard. I think we all did. That, oh, that was a tough day. I one of a it. kind, man. Yeah. He was a one of a kind. And, and when a gift like that gets taken away, and I mean, I always knew how much of a gift he was, so I, I never took Mel Brown for granted. At least I know I have that, and I know I never wasted any time with him. All my time with him was great. Mm -hmm. And uh, I bought his bass. Oh, really? Mal had a, a very special uh, Fender Precision. He talked about it for years, finally brought it back from Austin. When he showed it to me, I was floored. And uh, Angel was good enough to uh, negotiate me being the owner of the bass. Nice. So I play that bass, and I tell you, I can't play a wrong note on it. <laughs> it's like Mel is guiding me. It always amazed me when we were in the studio together, and he could play any guitar, and it would sound like mm. Mel Brown. Like it could be a Strat, it could be a, a Gibson, it could be whatever, and it was yeah. Mel. Uh, he had the sound was in his hands. Yeah, absolutely. The coolest thing I ever saw him do. This I'll never forget. And it was probably, he probably planned this somehow along the way. But we were opening for Otis Clay at Pop the Gator. So Otis had a keyboard player with a keyboard rig on stands. And the guy left the, the rig live. So we were doing our opening set. Mel's playing away and this keyboard rig's in his way. He keeps walking around. And finally, he just smacks the keyboard with his hand and realizes it's live. So he looks at me. He gives me that Mel Brown. Watch this Leo shit. And he did a uni, unison solo on guitar, hammering on, and playing the piano. Wow. He did 12 bars, and he was looking at me like he was on a roller coaster. And I'll never forget it. He just spot on played exactly the same thing with two, on two different instruments with two different hands. And I thought, man, you can't top that one, Brown. <laughs> <laughs> um, you also worked with Alana Miles. Uh -huh, I did for a long time. How did that happen? Her drummer, Jorn Anderson. Mm-hmm called me up they needed a bass player for a tour last minute and i was available and said yeah let's go play <laughs> and that How was really it i knew i knew yorn just from the musical community and uh, uh a little bit in the blues world because he'd done a record with david gogo he, he was on gogo's first record and they were touring and uh i was almost in that band they decided to use David's friend Todd, which worked out way better for those guys. I was disappointed, but um, I tell Gogo that all the time when I see him, make him feel guilty. And that's how the thing started with Atlanta. He was Atlanta's drummer. He was on the records. He was the musical director, and I got invited to join the trio that they had with her as a singer, and uh, went to Europe, and that started 16 years of working wow. with her. We'd still be playing. Atlanta's unfortunately got health issues that. Mm -hmm 
prevent her from performing. And so otherwise, we'd probably still be playing. What was it like to work with Lana? Because oh, that's at a different level altogether, too, right? It, it was a different, you know, it was con- when I started her band, in her band, she was still really, you know, an international act. So most of what I did with her the first four or five years was in Europe and right. Scandinavia. And we, you know, I did big shows with her. And they just got smaller and smaller as time went on. <laughs> and what does that feel like when they get smaller? Oh, it's great. I mean, the money was really good and the gigs were great. It's, you know, five-star accommodations and limos and all that stuff. And even, I mean, I missed, I kind of came in just as the bloom had fallen off the rose in terms of her career peaking. Right. Uh, but I had a great time and we did a lot of, re- like she took me around the world. And we played a lot of great shows right up until the very end. She was she always got on stage to sing. So, right. And then now, um, you're touring with Sue. Sue Foley, yeah. And uh, I don't know how many bands she has, but are you going around the world with her as well? We, well, Tom Bone and I are sort of her main touring band, depending on gigs and 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 locations. She has guys that she works with in Austin. Right. I mean, she works with all the Austin cats. A lot, a lot of those guys are touring guys, so you know, she can't get. So there's certain guys she can't get right um, full time. Uh, but we've developed a really cool trio, and she seems to really like this band. And we're starting up on March fourth. We're flying out to BC, and we start another six months of touring. Did you know that this album? I mean, I spoke to her a couple of years ago, and mm-hmm. she was recording the la- the latest album. But this latest album has done really well for her. Oh, it's a great record. It's a really well-done record, and it was well-produced. It was a, the right record for her to make. Right. So she wrote great songs. She came up with great tunes. She played great, and Mike Flanagan did a great production. And now so, she's really hot again. Yeah, well, it's her most focused record. Like Out of all of her reco- previous recordings... You get a sense of her, but this really get gives you a sense of who and what she is and what her message is. And part of it is just maturity. The mm-hmm. artist gets more focused, has something more direct to say. Uh, Had you worked with her before? No. We knew each other a little bit. I met her way back in the Pop the Gator era right. um, with Mel. But then she was on her way to Austin, so she went... She completely bypassed Canada, and I didn't see her probably for 10 or 15 years. And we crossed paths a couple of times, and we ended up playing together with Paul Reddick at the Southside Shuffle. So after that, she started calling me for shows. And did you know that there is chemistry? Like, how do you know that you'll be working with somebody? Well, the chemistry part is just luck of the draw, and that you can tell... Right away, if something, if how you're going to click with somebody and how your styles might fit or not fit, and then you actually work on it. You try to make your luck, I guess, and right, make but the I chemistry. Mean, when you happen. get on stage with her the first time, well, it started first... informally because she she was living up here, finishing a degree of some sort in right. school, and uh, wanted to play shows. Sam Grosso gave her a little home at Cadillac, and uh, she started phoning me, so we would do. You know, like the first gigs I did, she sent some of the repertoire that she wanted me to know, but she wasn't insistent. You have to know this 40 songs. It was like, well, these are the tunes I do. Learn what you can. And uh, over the course of a couple months, we developed the repertoire. And 
I'd say like I started maybe in October and by March her record was finished and getting released and we started doing like really serious shows with a bigger band and at that point then things get more focused in terms of arrangements like you bring in a horn section and a second guitar player then there's perhaps a bit more discussion on where to point the the parts but uh, the thing with Sue is that I she comes from the Austin tradition she's very studied um, and I know that music like that's sort of where I live that's my favorite kind of blues comes from that part of the world and and, and Mel came from Austin. Well, Mel spent a lot of time in Austin, but, you know, he's a Mississippi boy, really. Yeah. But, and I mean, Mel he was lived the house everywhere. band. At, at yeah, he was a big part of Clifford getting Antones really locked in on the map as a blues hub. He had the Monday Night Jam for years. Yeah. That's how I ended up with the bass. Clifford owed him some dough, gave him a bass. <laughs> <laughs> it all makes sense. Okay, so... It's a down-home world, man. <laughs> the other part was, we talked about your work in studio. Um, not as a studio musician, but you, you worked in studios as an engineer, as producer. How Still that? trying to do that. Okay, that came so- along just from... Uh, I was in studios really young. I spent a lot of time in them. Even though I wasn't a hands-on engineer, you're always, hey, can you patch that in? Hey, can you watch the tape deck? Uh, hey, your bass parts are over. The bass parts are tracked. I hang out at the studio and watch and help. And So it was kind of like a home. And then in the early 2000s, when business started changing and um, digital recording started blossoming, then I'm like every other musician. If I had a chance to record something cheap, I'm going to do it. So I started uh, experimenting with computer audio just in my home and uh, started learning digital audio workstations because I saw started to see Pro Tools everywhere and Cubase and different things and uh, I didn't want to miss that bus. Mm-hmm. So that's really how that started and then uh, I, st- I had this big apartment in downtown Kitchen or downtown uh, Toronto I had 1,300 square feet with 17-foot ceilings, and it was wow. like bigger than some of the recording studios. So I started getting gear, and I started recording in my loft. And, Your own stuff. Yeah, just recording onto a laptop, one mic, one mic pre. And uh, I started buying more gear and getting poorer <laughs> and buying more stuff and learning more and paying more attention at sessions. And then I just, like, you know, I just taught myself and... I mean, I've been privy to working with some incredible engineers in my life, so there's inherently no what to do or what not to do. And then I actually spent some time hitting the books and studying, man. I went back and tried to learn some elect, you know, basic ele- electrical engineering, and I wanted to understand what I'm doing. I had to learn about microphones, magic little things that I'm talking into right now. <laughs> and that, that can be very expensive. I asked my wife about it. <laughs> I, I probably have more money wrapped up in mics than bass guitars. Is your wife a musician? No, she's the marketing director for PCL Construction. Okay. So National marketing director now. Does she understand? Why, she must, right? Yeah, she does. <laughs> she understands. We're still a team and have to talk about everything. Um, but yeah, man, I have a lot of gear. I, at one point, I was partners in a recording studio, right. sort of a sweat equity partner, and I brought all my business there. So I had a boatload of stuff that I acquired in that five years. And when I left that partnership, I built a studio in the building that my loft was in, but then the owner sold the building to developers, and we 
had to give up the studio, and so my wife and I bought a house, moved out of the loft, and then I reestablished a, a recording situation in my house where I have a treated room and brought in all my gear, um, and I'm making records there now. So are you doing records for other people? Yeah, right now I'm making a really cool, uh, sort of a surf-inspired re- instrumental record with Rob Heemster, who's a local guitar player who's really good. He's a virtuoso. And uh, he wrote all these amazing kind of surf tunes. And uh, we decided to make a record. So we went into Revolution Recorders last July with Gary Craig, batted off 14 tunes in two days. Wow. And then uh, just to get the drums mainly, we tried to see how much we could get live off the floor for that vibe. But uh, we've replaced all the guitars and we're getting cool overdubs done with really cool people. And it's wow. turning into a great record and it's going to be mixed by a really fabulous uh, New York producer friend of mine. So I'm excited about this. Okay, so you're in Sue's band yeah. and I don't know if that becomes a priority, but I guess it's a commitment. Mm-hmm. There's certainly a commitment, yeah. You also work with the person I interviewed last week, Eric Schenkman in yeah. the Action Sound Band. Mm-hmm. Um, you have this project and I presume people constantly call you to come in and do gigs I get yeah I, I had last year I had a super busy year and I took a lot of outside stuff from Sue's gig and uh, I don't know if I can do that this year as much because I was really tired by the end of the year <laughs> but how do you prioritize <laughs> like how how do you set goals I just you and- know what I just love music and pl- I'm so lucky at this stage in my career that w- the people that phone me to work with me are people I want to work with. And saying no is the hardest thing. It's usually a conflict. Like, I can't physically be there, so I have to say no. Right. So I would always say yes to play with everybody, you know, because most of the people that call me are people that I've worked with already. Um, when I get a call to work with somebody new, I'm interested, and, and, I, and I check somebody out and go, yeah, I, I want to get into their world. So that's, it's more out of interest and just, lo- I love what I do. It's, <laughs> And the older I get, the more I love it, actually. Wow. Um, why do you think um, people want to work with you so much? And I, not to be... Oh, I'm not the most popular no. guy around, man, but... Um, <laughs> no, I, but- you know what? Like, you, 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 not every story is glory, right? Like, there are... I've had... I have my share of, you know, being fired or being told I was the wrong guy or I've had my bass tracks replaced just as often as I've replaced other people's bass tracks. Um, I'm not a competitive guy, so I don't really care about that. Yeah, maybe I, maybe yeah. I should rephrase that. But what is it about what you do that people want to work with you? Well, hopefully I play good bass for them. Like they get what they want in terms of a focused bass part. And I try to be responsible, show up on time as often as possible. I try to be in a good mood and you know like I, I, I if I don't want to be there people will know. Right. If you really don't want to be on a gig you shouldn't be on that gig. And I've had eras in my career where I had to take gigs just financially that I maybe didn't want to really do and you can really tell. If your heart's not 100% there then and you're just doing it for money then the people that are hiring you get that feeling. You've prioritized them right. and they will always feel like you put them in a box. And when I show up, I want people to know that I'm there because I think their music is so fucking interesting that it's worth my time. The money is part of it, of course, but um, it's not the biggest part of it. And me, at this stage, I mean, I've been playing for 40 years as a pro now. 
And I've done every shitty gig you can do, and I've done some amazing gigs. So I know the parameters. Tell me the two extremes. <laughs> Tell me the worst gig that comes to mind. The worst, in uh, I don't know. The worst gig? <laughs> well, I mean, there's gigs where things go wrong. Um, you know, I had gigs with, one night we with the Hawks where the, a bar fight broke out in bar 16 of the first song and the lights went off and that was the end of the show. <laughs> and like you hear people yelling and screaming and ashtrays were flying and guy came with a flashlight and said, get the fuck off the stage now. And that was the end of the show. So, I mean, that's kind of a bad gig. <laughs> or uh, gigs were uh, misintentioned gigs. Sometimes, uh, occasionally, like an Atlanta Miles gig would get put in the wrong club for the wrong reason and you'd have these kind of adversarial moments but i i don't know like i've had like in terms of accidents like i've been in clubs where uh the bar collapsed like you know 12 shelves full of liquor just yikes broke <laughs> and so that was the end of that show for a couple hours while they cleaned up the bar <laughs> the power we had the entire power grid go down in switzerland on a gig once just after you know, a thousand people in a in a great concert hall and somewhere in northern Switzerland and into the second song the lights went out and there was no emergency lighting it was just dark <laughs> and it was one of those old theaters where the back door stage goes right into a, an alley for loading so we just opened the door I went out back and looked and there's no lights anywhere and the entire entire power grid was down Wow. And we just spent two off days in the middle of this tour in this place to get some rest, play this show. So we didn't even get to play the show. <laughs> Tell me about the most memorable gigs, or the, on the other side, the positive gigs. Oh, well, there's been a lot of those. So sure. at this point, we've been talking a lot about Mel Brown. There was always, there wasn't any one gig in particular, but there were many nights where in the era, the first few years he was up there before the emphysema kicked in and he was still standing up and playing. We had a real kick-ass band, and we had nights where when that would click, man, and Mel would just look over and we would fly. And that's, a, you just get, it's kind of like when you're doing yoga and you hit nirvana and you get the white light. There's, it's just everything, all the boundaries of time and space seem to evaporate. You don't even have a sense of your body physically. You're just so connected musically it's guiding you the band is you know you're not listening to yourself you're listening to the other guys where are they going and when that happens and it clicks into like it's interstellar overdrive and that's pure joy you've connected with pure joy so it's not any one gig but there were many where it would happen with mel some Atlanta miles gigs were outstanding and you know we played some massive rock festivals and those were great shows like really good rock sexy rock and roll shows and those were lots of fun. You when know, you played classical music, did you ever have that? Did you ever get no. to that point? Classical music was a very stressful place to live for me. That's one of the reasons I went into popular music or electric bass, because there is still, and I mean, we're talking mid to late 70s, so you still have a very strict um, kind of closed, I found it very, a very narrow world to be in classical music and when I started looking at the union pay scales for a third chair cellist I was already making more money playing bass at 18 than the third chair cellist at the KW Symphony so what was I gonna like I could never have been more than a first or second chair I, I didn't have the education right. I didn't start early enough 
And if you want to be a real pro classical player, you have to go to a major school. You know, like I would have had to at least, I don't know, it would be U of T or in that era, I would have been trying to go to like Eastman or Juilliard. Or if you don't get minted by those schools, like trying to get into a big orchestra is impossible. But but that feeling of just hitting Novano on stage or when just... I, never, I, would, I guess I didn't get to play classical music old, like long enough into my adulthood to to be like in the middle of an orchestra. Mm-hmm. I played bass with the KW Symphony a few times, electric bass, um, high stress shows that I didn't enjoy. Um, they weren't about fun. It was just about exactly playing the notes as the conductor wants it. And uh, it's, a, it's a very stressful world because it's not about you. You're not interpreting anything. Right, right. You're being told how to play something and it's up to you to execute it flawlessly. And uh, I've never been that guy. I just, I hated being that nervous before going on. Like, I get nervous before I play sometimes. There's, you know. but Still. it's it's Yeah, it's not nervous like I'm fear right. of failure. It's more, uh, now it's like, I just, I want to go on and I want to kill. And I want to meet my own standard. And I want, and that standard's high. I want, just, I, if I, so it, the fear is like, am I going to hit my head on the bar or am I going to clear the bar? Um, but it's never like I'm incapable of doing this. Right. It's not that anymore. It's When, when yeah. did it become not that anymore? Um, I don't know. I, I guess you kind of morph into a, into a place when you've done it this long that it becomes about intention. Like, why am I doing this gig? Why am I working with this artist? Why am I going to go on this tour? Like, it, it is, what is the intention? And you get down to an individual performance is, what is the intention of this performance? And, okay, so my role, what's my role in fulfilling that intention in terms of the group? And that that's where it becomes art to me. It's like, okay, so I, I've got this, I know how to play and I know how to bring it to the stage. Now it's the next level of how do we get that to work with this band, whoever it is, and use that to elevate and transcend so that the artist, the message this artist is trying to put forth is crystallized and delivered, you know, like with absolute sincerity and accuracy. Is there any difference between being in Sue's band and executing her material than this latest surf music project you're working on, mm-hmm. which is more your thing. Like, do you approach it any differently? Yes and no. It's all it's still it's all about intention. And with Rob's record, on my intention is to illuminate his music, and within that, just down to the songs. Even what's the mood of this song? So the intention then becomes to serve the mood of that song, and let's successfully record this piece of music to get to that mood and I haven't done any recording with Sue if we get to that point that I would bring that same aesthetic into a session what can I do to within you know my realm to focus these bass parts so that she can fly so it makes this song happen like if I you took me out of it then the song wouldn't be happening so when do you learn that you are a support system versus main character and that's not even the right word for it but do you know what I mean like at what point in your career do you think okay my function is to make sure that this other person shines well that's being a side man 
So most of my career has been as, as a sideman. I also have, like you said, you mentioned Action Sound, which is a band I co-lead with Eric Schenkman. Um, it's kind of our thing. So in that respect, I'm not a sideman anymore in as much as, you know, I know what Eric needs and to successfully launch his songs within our band. And um, so I have I stake a bit more ownership in it in that way. And that project has been just percolating along for a couple of years and it's just starting to really become what I, what I hear. I haven't had the time to bring more of my songs to that project because I had, you know, I lost two, fa- two parents in two years. And oh, so I've had to, to deal with, and you know, my life has been pulled away from uh, having the time to, to bring what I want to bring to action sound. So Eric has, um, you know, been the driving force there. But it's not a sideman gig, so I don't think about well, what do what should I wear to look right, what fits in. Um, for instance, on Sue's stage, I don't talk. I don't go to a microphone and make offhand remarks or make jokes, or I don't, you know, like there's things I don't ever do that on her stage, because I'm the sideman. The show isn't about me. Action is, is sound that just is understood, about or is that spoken? If it's if you don't get that, you never make it. You know, like you just you'll be sidelined as a sideman. <laughs> But everybody's different, though, right? Yeah. Like some people might want you to say something, or well, they let you know, right. you know, if you, and and the other thing is with time, as you develop a relationship, you know, with there, I was my thing with Atlanta Miles was a lot different after 15 years than it was when I started with her. We are, I barely saw her for the first tour. She was she'd come in before showtime. As soon as the show was done, she was in a in a limo and then back to a, on a plane or. To a, a different hotel or wherever, you know, she. So I would, I barely saw her. I didn't even know her for the first year I was in her band. And how does that make you feel? Because I've heard other musicians. Well, that's talk about that. that that's business, though. That it works that way with lots of right. lots of acts, and especially when if at the level she was at then, her time is a. She needs more rest time. She's a singer, so the throat needs to rest, and she's doing all sorts of promo, and prepping that I'm not part of. Like the, there's a whole promotional side of it that she would have to deal with that isn't my world so right and then as things changed things changed then you we uh subsequent tours she ended up traveling more with the band part of it is because she felt comfortable with us like she we we got into different you know so many guys went in and out of her band but there was a couple golden eras where the band was consistent for periods of time and and she developed friendships and trust you know trust is the big word for any artist with any anyone they're working with did you ever want to be in a band or create a band of your like, as opposed to being a sideman, being in a band? Well, I've yeah, that's sort of. I always wanted to be in the Beatles. I tried to be a Muffin with Martha and the Muffins, and we made a cool record once. Right. Um, but that you know, that wasn't going to be a home. So I don't know. I've kind of given up on that. Although I have plans to realize some of my own compositions this year I've been writing songs forever and I've co-written lots of songs with people I've just never had the time to do anything about it and I've also not wanted to do like a vanity record Um, so I've taken my time and lined up my ducks and at some point this year I'm going to go in and start tracking uh, some of my songs properly and uh, get produced I'm not going to, I don't want to self-produce. I want like a good producer to, to uh, kick my butt around and get the best out of me. And okay, I've can got, you explain that? Tell me why 
you, that other person is essential to a project like this? Well, because at some point it becomes like I've made, I've been the producer on enough records to know that you ne can never stop worrying about the record ever. You worry about every inch of it that you're, because you have a stake in all of it. Um, so you, there's all this organizational stuff you have to do that takes you away from the creative side. And then when you're doing that and you're in maybe a recording situation and you're calling the shots and you're performing, you can't have your 100% ears on for what you're doing, what you could do better or what you've done wrong. You're always going to miss something. And even into the pre-production stage, I want to have somebody there to like take me to task on my songs and my melodies and my words before I even get near a band. How do you know that you've chosen the right person that you can trust? Because everybody has an opinion, right? Uh, maybe they sold a few million records. <laughs> <laughs> That's one place to start. Right. I don't want to give away too much now because this is it's just forming, but I have talked to the people that, the key people I want involved on this and towards the end, towards the end of next, like September, October, after uh, Sue's, you know, we're going to do a lot of intense touring this summer. And, uh, In I Europe wanna, as well, right? You were going to Europe and we've got this California, BC, the East Coast is coming again. Like there's a ton of work between now and September and probably September to Christmas as we did this year. But I'm, we'll have my stuff prepared to like, I'm looking at doing some recording September, October. And uh, there's other people's schedules involved too. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'm hoping to do something really cool and if and I'll share it with friends and because uh, I'm just making it to make it. Right. But I don't want it to sound like a vanity record. So I want I got okay, so a guy what's who's... The, what's the difference? Well, the difference just... is when you make a record that's just, I want to show off. And I don't want to show off. I want to make some music that can affect people. I don't want people to, anyone to go, oh, there's like that guy who plays bass. Let's hear what he did. Right. And, oh, listen to that bass solo. Like no bass solos on my bass, on my record. It's not going to be a bass. It's going to be a record of music. And uh, Music being <laughs> songs. Songs, yeah. Uh, songs with vocals. Okay. And then how long, where do these songs come from? Are these songs oh, that I've been writing write? for years. I got lots of songs. So some could go back. Some of, there's two or three that go back to the early 2000s that I want to record properly. And they haven't worn out on me. There's lots of stuff I've written that I look at now and go, eh, you know, I can see where my head was then. If I'd have recorded it then, great. But I don't need to dredge that one back up. So, and is it easy to find something from back then that still resonates, or that you still think, yeah, this still makes total sense to me today? Uh, a few things. I found a DVD uh, in a box, a storage box, with a bunch of demos that I'd forgotten I'd even done um, in my old loft apartment. When that place was rocking as a studio. I could just wake up and turn on my computer and start recording an idea. So I logged all this stuff and I did lots of demos and there were songs I forgot I'd written because I would, I didn't write them down. I just recorded them. <laughs> the lyrics might be on a piece of paper somewhere in a filing cabinet, but they, you know, when you don't think of something for 10 years, you've forgotten you've written it. Okay. So, so I found a couple gems there that I want to do. I've got a couple new songs. I want to have nine or 10 real killers and, 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 you know, you kind of wonder why hasn't this happened already? You know, uh, just like, A, I never wanted to make a vanity record, and B, it's expensive. 
<laughs> is it still too expensive though? Because well, mean, the way have... I want, I don't like. I don't want to make a bedroom record. My rec- I want to make a. I want to make a real record, a big boy record, and that's going to cost some cash. Okay, so if you did this, yeah. so as you said, to play with friends and to show to, uh-huh. to play two friends, would you? tour or do would you play it live i wouldn't be opposed to doing that if i could create that world for it but i'm a one at this point in my life it's one step at a time otherwise i get overwhelmed and you know i do have uh sue foley and i do have action sound and i do have the couple projects that i need to finish um in my studio and i don't want to be too yeah, yeah. diluted across all of those. So. It fascinates me because you obviously have spent most of your life in the studio. You, you have a love for recording yeah. and you have a love for playing. And yet you, this is like the first time you're going to seriously record some of these tunes. Yeah. I guess I just want to do it right. And, and I haven't, part of it is, I mean, life happens to you and mm-hmm. I've had a lot of life happen to me. So that would take the focus off and, I love being a sideman. Like there is a freedom to not having to worry about the entire gig. Like when it's not your baby, you're not worried about every aspect of the baby. And I can, you know, I can, maybe that's a bad analogy, but um, <laughs> I can really focus on when I'm touring, I can focus on my, my day being built around my show. I don't have to worry about doing promo unless I'm asked to. Um, I don't have to do the phoners. I don't have to do the banking. I don't have to worry about dealing with the uh, uh, advancing the show or talking to my tour manager about how to do that or or buying the flights. Like all the business end of it, I don't have to do that. Do you see much of that? Like, are you, are you exposed to that when you see when you on the road with Sue? Well, because we don't have a full time tour manager. Uh, in as much as Tom Bone is our tour manager when the trio goes out, um, we've just designed a very agile unit that travels light, right. quickly, and efficiently. And uh, Tom takes care of dealing with the agent and the clubs. So I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, when we get to the gig, I might be the guy who deals with the sound guy in specifics right. because I have a bit more tech background than than Sue or Tom and they're busy doing other things so I can deal with the sound guy or when we're doing a sound check I can point out specific frequencies or details of mix that I want the guy to do so that maybe I'll do that that's I'll worry about that past what my real role is but so at this point when you know that this summer you're going to be out there touring various places is that something you look forward to oh yeah so tour touring is still part of the love of music for you uh the only difference now is that I'm married and I miss my wife when I go on the road and she misses me. So that's the the hardest part of touring is really being away from home. Right. And um, that's huge, though. right? And that is huge. That's and so if you have all the other stuff in place, you know, it's a really great band. There would I wouldn't even leave home if the gig wasn't as special as a Sue Foley gig is to me. So, How long did it take you to know that? That this was a special thing. Well, playing with her was special right away. Uh, the touring, you never know until you get in a van or a bus or a plane with people to see how it's going to go because traveling together is way harder than the show because then you're now you're married to two other people and you have to show up at places the same time. And I mean, it's getting to the lobby together and getting in the van and planning the traveling and How's, you know, if the plane's delayed or the flight's canceled, like the stress of the traveling part 
is the hardest part. So the stress of the actual physical movement and then missing your partner, those are the two things that suck about being on the road. The rest of it is great. And at what point does it get really bad missing your partner? Oh, just time, too much time. Like, I mean, is it, I don't know how long you go out for, but... Well, the longest we've done with Sue is three, just over three weeks, which tends to be about as long as anybody tours anymore. Yeah. Unless you're like a really big stadium act. And even then, they, they take breaks after two or three weeks because people just get burnt out. And uh, even with Sue, I mean, we travel different time zones in the same day. Right. And we have to do red eyes to get to a gig for the next day, or there's like a 10-hour drive between shows. So, and every day is a different ball of wax because you're in a different place. But you look down the road this year yeah. and you got a lot of gigs. You look forward to the... I'm looking forward to the... Where, like Sue's shows are always... The people come to hear the music. We're not an adjunct to another thing. So right. it's, we're the focus. We get to play and she plays great. She, like her attitude is super pro. She's a very gracious human being. So you can be around her without getting fed up with each other. <laughs> Which well, is like, key, right? I, you know, I'm a, I'm a big, loud guy with a big, boomy voice. I, I can piss people off really easily. And I'm really direct. I have to be careful in how I talk to people sometimes. I'm Sagittarian, man. I don't waste time. <laughs> and I can sound like an asshole. So I have to think about that. And, you know, I'm on the road with these other people. How do I appear to them? And, what, and am I giving them a, Is my mood rubbing off? Am I affecting this? You know, if, if you're, what's the saying? If you're looking around the room and you can't spot the asshole, you're the <laughs> asshole. <laughs> so I'm tr- I've spent most of my time is trying not to be the asshole and then getting on stage and just killing a show because I go to play. Like Sue will tell you, anybody who works with me will tell you, the priority for me is about the show and playing. It's not, you know, I'm married, so I'm not chasing women. I don't do drugs. I'm, you know, I don't need to be there to... to to f- take the focus off a bad something in my life that's bad. I'm there to really play, man, because this is art and it's important and we change people's lives when we do it right. And it's a gift to be able to do it. So I don't want to ever take for granted that I'm getting... Like when I go down to play at Grossman's tonight, I'll hit my stage the way I'll, I'll hit an Atlanta show in front of 50,000 in Europe. It's the same... I go the, to do the same thing. So Where did you learn that? Uh, Jorn Anderson was one of the first guys when I started touring with Yorn and I would watch him psych himself up before a, a, a show. And, and he, cause he, he'd worked with a lot of musicians that were outside of Canada on another level. Like yeah, he yeah. worked with a lot of big motherfuckers. And, and when I've been around that world, like those bands, they take it so like they, you really want to get on stage and own it. And, uh, it becomes a point of personal pride. And at some point, you've done enough gigs, you're old enough, and once again, it goes back to, why am I doing this? And if I'm going to do it half-assed, then I'm wasting my time, because I want to do everything full-assed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. So, and, you know, that was, that's always, part of that's in the classical world. There's the pressure of being perfect all the time there. It's not an improviser's improvising world, so it's about technique. And so you get this, you have to go on stage be ready to kill and I've always taken that and when I haven't had that attitude then it it sounds like that how do you psych yourself up I mean is there a routine pre-show routine or anything uh warm up my hand warming up my hands now is really important because uh when you do something for 40 years like as much as I have your hands can become an issue so 
there's a little bit of uh, pre-show there that's I like to review the songs in my head uh, talk you know we'll talk about the first three songs what are we going to do if the show isn't written in stone for that set um, I just like to get myself in a good mood if I know that you know at soundcheck I've taken care of my stage my sound's dialed in, everything's dialed in, so that I have to, all I have to do is walk on stage and think about the music. I'm not thinking about what happened to the bass sound. Uh, why can't I hear the vocals? You know, like, unless something presents itself as an issue that you have to deal with. I like everything to be ready to rock so that I can be free and I'm not thinking about anything that has anything to do with engineering or tech. I want to think about my notes, my groove. I want to listen. I'm focused on the singer's voice. Working with Alana, you always had to listen to her singing every, every word because part of it was the emotional connection, but part of it is sometimes she would deke a beat here or there, <laughs> and if or she'd be in the middle of a performance move and might not might miss a cue, or the band might mess up and we'd have to find you know get her back. So um, that's the thing you do as a sideman: you focus on the artists that you're working for, and they become a you know. So I guess it's just part of preparing to be in that state. The odd shot at tequila doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so this is fascinating. Yeah. So I, I've never really talked to you before, yeah. and I really appreciate you doing oh, this. My, my final question <laughs> would be, um, when you think about that little kid who saw the Beatles and said, I want to do that, to the journey you've taken, tell me, tell me what you think of. Uh, well, you know, I've, I've had, been having this discussion with my wife recently last year or so because I'm I was kind of at this point where I'm looking back I started realizing like I've been in this a long time like has it really been that long and then you go back to a date book from 1982 and you go wow man I actually played all these shows and and uh, like I'm the guy who thinks that I never made it look I'm still thinking that if I keep trying hard at some point I'm gonna make it what is making it though well exactly and uh, I think defining that was really hard for me for a long time I made it years ago man but I just didn't know it until probably my late 40s because I grew up wanting to be in the Beatles and like if you weren't look what those guys did in 10 years yeah nobody can touch it yet you know like that when you see a uh so I've never been in the Beatles, so I didn't make it in my head. But um, on the other hand, like if I look back at my resume and the journey, and it's been amazing. Like I've been, I've played with unbelievable musicians. Like mm-hmm. um, a lot of them have passed on, unfortunately. And like what a gift to have played with John Lee Hooker or Richie Havens. Um Here's another, we haven't even talked about my friend Terry Manning, who's one of the most legendary producer, engineer, musicians of all time. Uh, he just He's just releasing a record of a live show we did in Elvis Presley's living room. Um, so in Graceland? Not Graceland. <laughs> okay. The first bungalow he bought in Memphis with his when he made his big money. Um, when he went to Graceland, he sold that house to, these, to a, a couple that owned it until about 10 years ago. And the house was subsequently bought by the University of Tennessee, the University of Memphis, and the Mike Curb Foundation, and uh, restored to El- the 50s way it was when Elvis lived there. And they now use it as, a, as, a, as an events site right. and for meetings. And anyways, Terry got invited to do a show there. And so we actually played 
a rock and roll show in uh, Elvis's living room, which looked like a 1970s porn den. It's like bad. Like this right. is, and I was stunned. There was an Electra Home console stereo in one of the rooms, and I leaned it back to check it out, and it was built in Waterloo at the Electra Home factory in Waterloo. I used to. When, where I grew up. Like, so Elvis's stereo came from... <laughs> and they moved all the furniture back from Graceland that he'd taken. Like they studied the photos. They stripped the wallpaper down to the original wallpaper. Uh, I have some photos I took of that show. But Terry recorded the night and he's releasing the record next month. So is this like Elvis rock and roll kind of We stuff? played a couple Elvis tunes, but Terry being like an interesting cat, you should find out about Terry. Anyone who doesn't know who Terry Manning is needs to know. If you go on the back of eight or nine ZZ Top albums, you'll see his name as engineer or co-producer. Uh, he was associated with Al Green, big star. Wow. He mixed Led Zeppelin III. And he's an amazing human being, a photographer. He's a renaissance man. How I got hooked up with him is a whole other story and one of the beautiful accidents. Uh, and I had a point to this at some point. But, Do you uh, want to tell us how you hook up with him or not? Uh, I was part of his recording forum, and uh, he Terry hosts because uh, he's when I say he's a recording engineer, he's one of the greats. He's in the pantheon and probably the top yeah. five cool. or six guys of all time, and he's touched a lot of amazing music that you've listened to. And I'm sure. So I humbly joined his forum to learn as much as I could from because he of course attracted the membership is all some of the other great record producers and engineers. They all talk to each other on this forum. And, Anyways, he said he was going to play a show in Memphis because he's also a musician. And I just made a joke on the on uh, online and said, "Hey, man, where can I audition to play bass in your band?" And uh, he called me. Wow! So did you? Did he know you at all? Well, not personally. I'd been on his forum for a couple of years, so we had this online relationship. But it's an it's a forum where you can't be anonymous, and he, so he had contact info, and he actually called and said, "Hey man, are you, this is Terry Manning. Are you serious about playing with me in Memphis?" And I went, "Yeah." So we uh, we had a nice conversation. I asked him how I would, uh, how could I audition, and he said, uh, "I said, can we do a Skype audition?" And he said, "Nah, man, I just have a feeling," and that was my audition. So well, I, he flew me to Memphis, and I started playing shows with him. But there's got to be more to it than that. That no? was it. Like, just, he, well, I mean, you look, can find out about me yeah, if you go yeah. online and, and and my rock and roll history with Ronnie Hawkins and the blues people. And there's people there that right. I'm sure Terry knows. You can Google me and find all sorts of bad little videos of me playing here and there. So he knew I wasn't a beginner. <laughs> right. And he probably figured out that I'd be quite willing to try and give him what he wanted on bass. He's a really great bass player, by the way, so. Wow, yeah. that's so cool. That's he's a, a great pretty musician. cool story. Oh, he's an amazing guy. Wow. And so was it a good gig? It was a great gig. We had a um, we played some Elvis. We played some Big Star or Chris Bell music because Chris uh, and Terry were really close at one point. Terry's all over the first two Big Star records, if you're into that world, if you know right. about Alex Chilton and Chris Bell. I don't know a lot, but I am, I'm told that Big Star is somebody. Oh, you should, should listen hearing. to the Big Star records. They're amazing. Yeah. Uh, and he's been at the nexus he's sort of like a nexus to all these different eras of music and people I and mean, he was recording quite young I think he was at working at Ardent when he was 17 already and he's engineered at Stax and Fame and Abbey Road he was in house at Abbey Road 
you can go read about Terry online. And, and he's also an amazing photographer, and that's a second career that he's enjoying right now. He took some of the last photos of Martin Luther King. Wow. He shot some of his photos are iconic record covers. So, so I presume he's based out of Memphis. Uh, he's actually living in El Paso right now. Oh. Okay. For a long time, he was in Bahamas. He was the uh, Chris Blackwell tapped him to be the uh, manager and chief engineer of Compass Point after Alex Sadkin passed away. So uh, Terry was at Compass Point for about 20 years until business, uh, legit businesses in Bahamas have just been run out of because of the corruption. So the studio was closed. Um, closed a few years ago, but I mean, he was recording Shakira and Lenny Creed did Lenny Kravitz's Five. That was a massive wreck. Wow. He's still good friends with Lenny. And, and Terry's a cool guy. Cool. Go find out about him. I've been trying to get him up here, like get somebody to book a show with him for years, but uh, I haven't had any bites yet. <laughs> well, let me know when it happens. <laughs> well, the, the couple times it could have happened, Terry couldn't do it, so I shouldn't say that nobody wanted to, but it was just a timing thing. But, well, I'd love to have him come up here and show people how it's done. Well, it's been a real treat. Thank you so much for doing oh, this. I'm I really appreciate flattered. This. Like I said, uh, when you contacted me, I'm, I don't know why anyone would want to talk to me, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of fun for me. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you.